Well, we're in Numbers, and we're going to be reading a section from Numbers 21, and we'll talk about the context of it more in a few minutes. But if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read Numbers 21, and this the story of the yet again the people's failure, and yet again God's graciousness in dealing with their failures. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. You may be seated. May God encourage you and me through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask your grace upon us. We ask for your kindness upon us as we look at your word. We pray that you would change us according to your word. Help us to look to you, to your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I struggle sometimes with feeling bad about things that, that maybe I, I shouldn't feel bad about, or at least maybe not as bad as I, I feel about them. For example, several years ago, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, we changed our, our cell phone carrier, and I still sometimes feel bad when I, I see the person who used to manage our account at the, the previous company. I, I feel like I should go up and and ask for his forgiveness. You know, hey, it was just a purely a financial move, and but I still feel bad, kind of that weight of, of like, like maybe I, I wronged him, you know. Or uh, just this past week, I was thinking about a breakfast appointment that I'd forgotten about. I had, had missed something and hadn't shown up at this breakfast appointment, and, and Friday morning, I woke up thinking about how bad I, I felt about this breakfast appointment that I missed. 17 years ago. I mean, literally 17 years ago, I still kind of felt bad about it. And so that, that's kind of my personality, kind of feeling bad about things, maybe sometimes more than I should. Now, if that's, if that's my personality, and maybe some of you struggle with similar things, what hope do I have of feeling secure and comfortable in my relationship with God. I mean, I feel bad about a breakfast I missed 17 years ago with someone who wanted to yell at me. I mean, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, I feel bad about that. How in the world can I feel comfortable being in relationship with a holy God? You know, we just sang that song about God's holiness, and, and he's, he's infinitely holy, he's majestic, he's sovereign. How in the world can someone like me feel comfortable about being in a relationship with a holy, an infinitely holy God, 
And if I think about it, there is no one in my life, no being that I've sinned against more than God himself. So how in the world can I have a sense of confidence in my relationship with him? And maybe that's something that that you struggle with as well. As you contemplate, you think about your sin and God's holiness, maybe it's hard for you to have hope of relationship with him. Or maybe for some of you, and, and this, I want to talk particularly to you because this kind of ties in more directly with what we're looking at this morning, maybe for some of you, not only are you struggling as you contemplate your sin and God's holiness, but you're, you're doing that while at the same time being in a situation where you're struggling with the consequences of sin. So, for example, you're in a situation with, with work, and you did something wrong there, and you, maybe you kind of went behind someone's back, or you engaged in some gossip, or you didn't do the work the way that you were supposed to do. You did something wrong, and maybe someone did something wrong to you too, but whatever it is, you did something wrong, and now, in this moment, you have to not just deal with the sin of what you did, but you have to deal with that sin while you're also facing some of the consequences of the sin that you committed. And you're feeling the, the guilt of that. You're like, well, I, I kind of deserve what I'm going through. And at the same time, I've kind of like some deliverance from this and I need to deal with the sin itself. Or maybe there's been a, a, a situation in a marriage relationship and you've, you've wronged your wife. You've, you've said some things that were very hurtful to her and you were way out of line when you said them and you, you've hurt her. And now she is, is kind of expressing her displeasure at you and you're, you're dealing with the sin of what you actually did, but you're also dealing with the consequences of what you did. Or maybe you're dealing with the consequences of someone else's sin, and it's just a struggle living in this fallen world. What hope is there for you? Well, what we see in this passage, by God's grace, is that God calls those of us who are dealing with living in a fallen world and dealing with the consequences of our sin and other people's sin and whatever, God calls us by his grace to look to his son Jesus and live. To have abundant and eternal life. God graciously calls you and me as we deal with the consequences of sin. God calls us in in that moment of dismay. God calls us to look to Jesus and live. We're going to see that as, as we look at this, this story that seems kind of strange. You know, you, if you're reading through the book of Numbers and you come to this, this passage, you might read it real quickly and think, well, that was weird, and, and go on. So we're going to spend some time talking about this passage and say, what, what does this mean? What is God communicating to me? What does it mean to, to look to Jesus and live? Before we do that, let me kind of remind you where we are in the book of Numbers. You know, a couple weeks ago, and I've said this multiple times, if you're kind of thinking about this book of Numbers, there's five major sections, and you kind of think about these major sections in terms of geography and and travel and movement. So the first section deals with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the first uh, ten chapters or so. And then the people go from Mount Sinai and they travel, and that second section that is a, is a travel section as they move from 
Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then the third section is at Kadesh Barnea, and that's the section we were in a few weeks ago. In fact, turn to Numbers, uh, Numbers 14, 15 with me, if you will. And this, this third section that we looked at a few weeks ago is this, this section of being in Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness. It begins in chapter 13. We see the sin that takes place in chapters 14 and 15 as the, the people, excuse me, in, in uh, 13 and 14 as the people refused to enter the promised land. Now, before we leave this section, I just want to, to highlight a couple of things in this this portion of Numbers, and I don't want you to, to miss these, these stories. Numbers 16, you can turn there, for example. And in Numbers 16, we have this really pivotal event. It's going to be referred to multiple times throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. It's the, the incident we call Korah's Rebellion. And remember, we talked about how the tribe of Levi was divided into three clans, and one of the clans was the clan that Aaron was a part of, and there were two other clans, and it was only Aaron's line that were to be priests, but the other lines were to be engaged in uh, serving in and around the tabernacle. And in chapter 16, there's a rebellion. They say, this, this group led by Korah and some others say, look, um, who do you think you are? They say in uh, verse, uh, verse 3, all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, the Lord's among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And uh, Moses falls on his face as he hears this, and, and they, they deal with this rebellion by Korah and his followers. And maybe for those of you who are, uh, have kids in our Sunday school ministry, or if you're a kid in our Sunday school ministry, they covered this story a few weeks ago. And then in chapters in 17, 18, 19, they kind of deal with the aftermath of this. And it talks about here are what the, the roles and the duties of the Levites are going to be. And then we come to chapter 20. And as we come into chapter 20, we've entered the fourth section of the book of Numbers. So start off at Mount Sinai. Second section is travel. Third section is there in the wilderness for 40 years near Kadesh Barnea. Now the fourth section, they're going to be traveling from Kadesh Barnea to the plains of Moab. And the plains of Moab will be that fifth section of the book of Numbers. But here they are in this fourth section traveling. And it doesn't go well. Some hard things happen. Chapter 20, Miriam dies, Moses' sister also in chapter 20, Moses commits that, that sin of unbelief. God has told him to strike the rock or to, uh, to speak to the rock. Instead, uh, he exhibits unbelief. We're not exactly sure what the unbelief is. Maybe it's that he strikes the rock instead of speaks to it. And it says, uh, God tells him in verse 12 of chapter 20, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And so there's a huge blow to the people of Israel as well. And then also in chapter 20, Aaron dies. And so big hit on this family and the leadership of Israel there in chapter 20. And then we come into chapter 21 and we encounter this story, this strange story of the bronze serpent. And as I've suggested to you, what we're going to see here is that God calls his people in the midst of their sin, in the midst of dealing with the consequences of their sin, God calls his people to look to his son, Jesus, and live. The gospel is contained in these verses, and we'll see how as we go through it together. 
We're going to go through it together. We're going to look at four truths that I think help us as we struggle to deal with sin and its consequences. Here's the first truth. First truth is this. Sin, I need to understand this, sin is ultimately about deciding to worship myself instead of God. Sin is ultimately about deciding to worship myself instead of God. And so look at the text with me here, and look at what happens. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea. This is the, the people of Israel. They're, they're going around the land of Edom. Now, what had happened in chapter 20 is the people had said to the Edomites, they said, hey, can we travel through Edom? We're here, kind of south of the land that God has promised. Can we kind of travel through your land and travel along the king's highway? Remember, the Israelites have been in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around, and they're they're excited about leaving this time of wandering and going along the king's highway. They say, look, we'll, we'll go along and we'll engage in commerce. We'll buy food from you. And, uh, you know, there's some excitement about that possibility. And the Edomites, the king of Edom, says, no, you cannot do that. And so the people, instead of going just this short route, have to go to the south and east. And you can imagine the frustration that they feel as they, with each step, they get more and more out of the way, further and further from the king's highway and from being able to engage in commerce and be able to eat this good food. They, they get more and more frustrated and impatient. That's the word that we see used there in the text. It says they, they become impatient on the way. Now, that doesn't seem that bad, right? I mean, the word impatient doesn't seem like, like that bad of a thing to be. It seems kind of understandable to be impatient in this situation. But look at what else we see about impatience. We see that it's revealing this, this bigger heart problem. An impatient heart is a heart that doesn't trust God and His timing, and so they begin to complain about their circumstances, and they say, as they complain, notice how it's described in verse 5. It's not just complaining, but complaining, ultim- or the, the word complaining, we kind of have a, a, a not too negative a connotation with that word, but, but look what complaining actually is. It says that the people are speaking against God and against Moses, and they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. Well, okay, there's food, but we hate the food that we do have. It's this worthless manna. Let's think about what's happening theologically here. Because when we think about complaining, we think about maybe even becoming impatient in the circumstance, we'd say, you know what, it's kind of understandable. I myself in this situation would be impatient, probably not that big of a deal. Let's, let's think theologically about what's taking place. Let me, let me show you a little chart here. We've, we've looked at a similar chart before. What is supposed to happen The people are supposed to love God, right? You begin with loving God. And then as the people love God, what happens? They encounter life. Life happens. Circumstances happen. Good things, bad things happen in life. And so a person who loves God, and the Israelites were to love God, they they begin with love of him. They begin with a, a desire to exalt him. And then they encounter the circumstances in life, be it being delivered from Egypt, be it 
uh, having manna from heaven, be it having to take a circuitous route around Edom, whatever it is, they encounter life. And a person who loves God, what do they do when they encounter life? What do they do? They, they, they submit to what it is that a sovereign God has, has put in front of them. They say, okay, this is what a sovereign God who loves me and is all-powerful has decided to do. I, I'm going to submit to that. And not only am I going to submit to that, but as I think about who God is and his desire for my life, as I encounter these circumstances, good and bad, what do I do? I, I worship. I worship. That's what's supposed to take place. In fact, you can keep your finger there in Numbers and, and you turn back to Exodus 14. And in Exodus 14, what happens? The people are delivered at the end of Exodus 14. It says, thus the Lord, this is verse 30, it says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then what happens? Exodus 15 happens. And what's Exodus 15? It's this, it's this song of worship. Moses begins to sing, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. You're coming down in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, Yahweh God among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What is that? The people love God. Life happens, circumstances happen, God's miraculous hand is among them. He shows them signs, wonders, they submit to those. They, they see those through hearts and eyes of faith and they, they worship. Manna, this food that God gives them from heaven, we encounter that in other places in Scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, you're, we see the, the, the people saying to God, in your great mercies, you do not forsake them in the wilderness. And then in verse 20, he said, you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for thirst. The psalmist in Psalm 78 says, listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 78 describes manna, this food that the Israelites have just called worthless. Listen to how the psalmist describes it. The psalmist says, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the bread of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. You see that? A person who loves God encounters the circumstances of life and submits to what God is doing. And as they see what God is doing, they, they worship. God, you have, you have rained down the food of, of the angels. We are getting to partake of this. You have provided for us in the wilderness, in the wilderness an abundance of food. That's what is supposed to take place. Now, here's, here's what actually takes place. Look at this chart. Instead, what happens here is a love of self. And now, in this love of self, these people encounter life. They encounter circumstances. And instead of submission, there's demand. 
this is kind of that, that phase where people create idols and they say, okay, this is what I want. This is what I desire because I'm going to exalt myself instead of God. This is what I demand happen in my life. This is what I, what I, what I want to see take place in my sphere of, of experiences. And when that doesn't happen, instead of worship, what is there? There's, there's complaint or you can fill in the, that, that last circle with some other fruit of of idolatry that comes from a heart that exalts self, anger, strife, quarreling, whatever it is. So you see what's happened here? The Israelites have loved themselves. They've encountered circumstances. And here's the key. These circumstances that they encounter are the exact circumstances that should fuel worship. And instead, in these hearts, they fuel complaints. They've been rescued from Egypt. It should cause this, 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 this compulsion to worship the God who saved them. And instead, we just brought us out to die in the wilderness. They've encountered this life circumstance, the, the bread of heaven, the food of angels in abundance. This stuff, what do they call it? What do they, what do they call it? Worthless. That which God has provided that should fuel worship, they call worthless. Now, now, brothers and sisters, this is a big deal. Complaining, impatience, are, are not heart characteristics of someone who's exalting God. And we give them nice names, or kind of names that don't sound so bad, but at their heart, and in our hearts, we're exalting ourselves and, and not worshiping God. We, we've talked about this. Now, let me go one step further and, and talk about why this is so, so dangerous. In fact, let me go to another passage to, to illustrate what I'm going to try to say here. It's in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 44. And in, in Jeremiah 44, uh, Jeremiah has confronted the people in their, uh, about their idolatry, and the people... Instead of saying, Jeremiah, you're right, man, this, this is messed up. We are worshiping these false gods. We're done. This was, whoa, what were we thinking? They double down. Instead of repenting, they double down. Listen to what they say. It says, Then the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah. This is what they said. As for the word that you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. We will not listen to you. We will do everything that we've vowed. We'll make offerings to the queen of heaven. We're going to pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. And listen, listen to why they're going to do this. Here's why they say we're going to do this. For then we had plenty of food and prospered, and we didn't see disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Hosea, you see, you see a similar thing in Hosea 2. God says, look, I'm going to take away the things I've given my people because they, they think they, they come from gods, from false gods, from idols. Now, here's, here's why this is so dangerous. 
here on this, this, bottom, this, this bottom scenario, you love yourself, you encounter the circumstances of life, and you have these, these demands, and you're willing to, to uh, worship these, these, false, these false things because they, they, and here's the key, because they give you what you want. Now, here's, here's the danger. Here's what I'm trying to get to. You can think you're loving and exalting God and be practicing idolatry because really you're exalting yourself. And you, you think you're worshiping God, but really you're, you're worshiping God because you think he's going to give you what, he, what you want. And as long as he keeps giving you what you want, you're okay. But once he begins to give you life circumstances that, that aren't what you want, you have a problem. You see, on that bottom line, you can start with loving self, you can encounter the circumstances of life, and you can have these demands, and the, you think this, this Christianity thing gives you the things you, you want, and so yeah, you're, you're fine, but, but, really, but really you've engaged in idolatry. That's what's happened here with the people of Israel. Yahweh God is great when he does what they want him to do, but when he doesn't, there's a problem. When I was in uh, high school, I worked at a uh, very prestigious job uh, serving uh, iced tea at a cafeteria. And, um, you know, one, one time I had to sit down with my boss and I said, look, uh, I, I need to confess something to you. I, I called in sick a few months ago and I was, I was not sick. I had a scheduling conflict and I, I don't know why, but I, I don't know what I was thinking about. I lied to you. I lied to you. And um, now this guy, he was a he was a tough boss. He wasn't he wasn't mean, but he was he was a tough guy. And if he had caught me lying, he would have had no problem dealing with that. He would have perhaps enjoyed dealing with catching me lying. But this this threw him for a loop. He didn't know what to. He didn't have a category for someone that confessed lying to him. So what, he goes, I, I don't know what to do with this. Because <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable with this. Why would you tell me this? My point is this. We're often unaware of the reality of sin in our lives. And God uses, God has to do something to help us become aware of this reality that sin is ultimately about deciding to worship and exalt myself instead of him. And that brings us to the second thing we see in this passage. Number two. God graciously awakens us to the folly of our sin. Something really hard happens next here in the story. People lose their lives. It says that God sends fiery serpents, and that, that word fiery probably refers to the, the effects of the people who are, the effects of the bite. It's this, this fiery inflammation the serpents bite the people, and many of the people of Israel die. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a horrific thing. We, we, we see that verse, and we realize there are, there are spouses who lost their husband or wife. There's people who lost their children. There was, there's great destruction that takes place because of the sin. But, but look at, at what happens as a result of this terrible thing. Verse 7, we see that there is awareness of sin and repentance. People, it says, 
recognize that they did something wrong. We've sinned, they say to Moses. And not only do they recognize that what they've done was, was wrong in kind of an abstract sense, they're, they're specific about what they've done. We've, we've spoken against the Lord and against you, and not only do they recognize what they did was wrong and are specific about what that action that they did represented, they're also aware of where deliverance can come from. They say, pray to, to Yahweh, pray to the Lord that he take away the servants from us. In other words, this is an act of God's grace, even as horrific as this discipline is. It's a hard truth to accept, but affliction that leads to repentance, affliction and a hard road that leads to repentance is far, far better than an easy road that leads to hell. A hard path that leads to repentance is better for us than an easy path that leads to hell. You know, as as a parent, I pray for my children and I, I pray that God would keep them from sin, but I also pray that God would not allow them to experience any joy or pleasure in sin, that God would make the the, the path of sin very very miserable for me and my children. God in his grace does various things to help us become aware of sin in our lives. You know, God isn't always going to afflict us with with this type of discipline. You know, the the consequences we suffer for our sin are are going to be varied. We encounter suffering, we say, okay, God, is this suffering the result of sin? And and if so, thank you for this, and I I don't want to stay in this, and please help me experience deliverance and join you, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. But, you know, there are other ways that God is going to let us become aware of sin and, and how foolish it is. Sometimes God is, is just going to allow us to look at someone else and, and see the, the consequences of sin in their life and say, boy, I, I, um, I recognize how, how foolish sin is. You know, I look at what a, some wrong decisions in this person's life have led to, and I, I just want to be aware of that. Or sometimes God is going to use just the reality of living in a fallen world. We're going to see suffering. We're going to say, you know what? I recognize that this disaster, the, this, this uh, horrific event is, is true of just the fallenness of our world. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from that. I'm going to turn because I, I see what the consequences of sin are. Sometimes I'm going to read Scripture. And I'm going to come to a passage of Scripture and I'm going to say, boy, I, I, that attitude... That exists in me. That heart attitude exists in me. Complaining. I, I wasn't even aware that I was a complainer, but I, I come to, to Exodus and Numbers and I see complaining and, and God, your word convicts me. You remember last week, uh, Pastor Mike mentioned Psalm 19, verse 11. It talks about God's word and says, by, him, by them your, your servant is warned. You know, I, I'm warned. I, I come to God's word and it convicts me. Or God uses other Christians in my life. Someone comes alongside me and says, Daniel, uh, Man, I, I love you, but I, I watched the way that you interacted with your son in that situation. And yeah, I understand you were frustrated, but that impatience that you showed toward your son, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about that. It, it, it's not, I, I think God has a better way for you here. Let's, let's talk. Let's, let's do life together. James 5, I think um, 19 and 20 talks about how 
a, a person who, who turns a person away from sin, saves their soul. You know, there's this, there's this benefit of just being in life together, doing care group, doing ministry together, and allowing people to, to just speak truth to our lives in, in a gentle way. Say, hey, let's, let's think about this. So, the consequences of sin help us, by God's grace, recognize sin. Here's the third truth that I think helps us. The third truth is this. Uh, as we think about sin and the consequences of sin and how, how to deal with all that, Jesus took the shame of our sin on himself. We, we come to a verse that's a little hard to understand. The people have recognized their sin and they've recognized where deliverance comes from. And they go to Moses. Moses prays to God. And then Moses gives, or God gives this instruction to Moses. Make a fiery serpent. Put it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now, why? Here's what I think is going on. The people have sinned. They've complained. There's been this judgment. This, these, these serpents who come along, people bite them. There's inflammation. Some of them, many of them die. And now Moses is told to make this, this serpent and put it on a pole. And the people are to look at it. Now, what does that serpent represent? That serpent represents the shame of the sin that they've committed. As a person looks on that serpent, what they are saying is, yeah, God's judgment is just. This serpent represents the shame of what I have done. And I, I'm, I'm looking at that serpent and I'm recognizing that I've done something wrong. I deserve this judgment. And I'm, I'm believing that, that God and only God can deliver me from this judgment. It's kind of like when you're at a restaurant, perhaps. It's the serpent. And you eat a meal. And you, and you come to this restaurant kind of hungry. So you order some appetizers. Then you order a big meal. Dessert, why not? And so you take dessert as well. And then you're feeling particularly generous and you say, the whole table, it's on me. And, and eventually, after all the enjoyment of the food and the eating, this piece of paper comes. And it's kind of like, it's, 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 it's concealed in a little folder because it's so terrible, right? And like, we don't want else to see this, but you need to, when you have time, kind of look at this. And you, oh man, you open it up and, there's this, there's this piece of paper, and this piece of paper is a symbol of the indulgence you've just uh, engaged in. And now, now there's this, this symbol of, of shame, a piece of paper, a bill, and somebody's got to pay it. It's a physical representation of what's taken place. And so you, you pull out a, a credit card and you put the credit card in and they, they take it and there's this, there's this temporary time in which the, the bill's been taken care of, that piece of paper has been dealt with. Now, what's happening here, the people aren't fully understanding exactly what all this represents, but they're saying, okay, I, 
I understand, I, rep, I, I agree that I deserve this punishment and I, I believe that God can save me and so I'm looking. It doesn't mean, the word he uses here doesn't, doesn't mean to just to glance, it means to, to look upon. I'm, I'm believing, I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm pondering, I'm saying, yes, this judgment is just and, and yes, God, you'll deliver me. And the people of Israel don't fully understand how that deliverance is going to take place, but, but for a moment, there's, there's deliverance. But the credit card still has to be paid. The bill still comes due. The sin that the people commit in their self-exaltation, in their impatience, in their complaining, that bill is still due. The sin has still not been dealt with. And then we come to John chapter 3, right? And we encounter Jesus. And we encounter an interaction with a man who is in similar danger as the people in Numbers 21. The people in Numbers 21 are in danger of death. Nicodemus, this guy who interacts with Jesus in John chapter 3, is a man in danger of death, eternal death. He comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus say in John chapter 3, right before you get to John 3.16 that tells us about believing in Jesus. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He tells him in verse 14, he alludes back to the events of Numbers 21. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm I'm taking the place of the snake. I'm going to take the, the place of shame. I'm going to pay the bill. As we encounter The gospel here in Numbers 21, we encounter the gospel in the New Testament as well. And we see over and over again in in Scripture this idea that that Jesus pays the bill as he becomes our sin and shame. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that through Christ, this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sin against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he says in verse 21, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians chapter 5, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. How can someone like me, who struggles with guilt as I think about my interactions with a fellow sinner, how in the world can I have confidence of my relationship with God? It's not because I think I am so lovely. It's not because I think I'm some sort of prize of a friend or it's it's great to save me because I could win some congeniality award. No, I, I look upon Jesus. 
and I take confidence in the one who paid the bill. And I recognize his complete and total ability to deal with any sin and all of the consequences of sin, which brings us to the fourth truth. We can be saved from our sin by simply looking to Jesus in faith. It says here, Moses made this bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And just as was said, if a serpent bit anyone, the person could look at the bronze serpent and, and live. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? That the person who believes in, in me, the person who believes in, in the Son of Man, can, can have eternal life. For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're in the same danger as the Israelites. We're in the same danger as Nicodemus. We stand justly in line of God's wrath. And so what do we do? We look to Jesus. We look to the cross. We look to the symbol of the shame of our sin. And we believe in God's complete forgiveness through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not to minimize the reality of sin in my life, but but what does it tell me? God graciously calls me as I as I deal with living in a fallen world, as I deal with the consequences of sin, my sin, other people's sin, what do I do? I look to Jesus, not myself. I look to Jesus in faith, in him alone, experience abundant and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him. We pray that you would Make us aware of sin in our lives so that we can repent of it and place our faith and trust in Jesus and turn to him. Give us your grace. We beg of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.